I want to talk tonight about Passover because you can't you can't get to Passover and then just kind of treat it lightly. It's a major milestone in the history of the people of God, and it's a major event in the history of the church itself. So I have a few things I want to look at in, in the Passover story and in the institution of the Passover, but then I do want to look at the song of Moses, well, the crossing of the Red Sea and the song of Moses. So we'll get, we're going to just kind of hang out here. And this, this sort of trio of episodes of the, 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 well, they're all sort of one story, but you have the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the song of Moses. It's, this is really the crux of the deliverance part of what God is doing in his people, right? He's, he's heard their cry. He's come down. He's slowly worked mighty victories. He's established all of his signs, um, ending in the last sign, which is really the sign that leads directly into Passover, which is the, the plague on the firstborn, the killing of the firstborn. And then we have really what is the, the, the moment of salvation, or the, or the few days that comprise, this is the, if you want to say, if you want to look at the story of Exodus as a, a metaphor, which it, which it is, it absolutely is, for our journey with God, this is the salvation part of the journey. And this is where, and it's these three things. It's not just the crossing of the Red Sea, it's the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the Song of Moses. They all work together to give us a picture of salvation, deliverance, all right? <clears throat> So, Exodus 12. Begins like this. The Lord said to Moses, and really what I'm going to do is just walk through here and pull out some points. I'm not going to read through, through the whole thing, but I'm going to give, give some points that kind of go in sequence with the story. So, the first thing you see here is that it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And I just, I want to stop there and underline that. Because that's a very important part of the story. What's happening now? God's resetting the the timer. He's resetting the calendar. And there's not really, um, he's saying from now on, you're going to measure time by, by, by referring to this event that's about to take place. Every time you, you what, what year is it? It's X number of years since we came out of Egypt. Okay, we kind of have that now too with the AD, you know, BC and AD. But the calendar is reset. When, when the calendar is reset, something, something huge has happened in history. Um, and this, God says, I'm, I'm resetting the calendar. So there's a few things that I want to point out on this. One is that this is, this is one of the key indications that God is, he really does want to bring his people out of Egypt completely and get all of Egypt out of them. Okay, there's not much more fundamental to the organization of society than the standard of time measure, measurement, right? That's really what you have to do first. And so that's why the Roman emperors, they had their system of time and then it got switched to Gregorian and that kind of stuff. It's a very important thing. It's, it's really one of the fundamental ways that we structure society. And so God says, I'm going to structure, restructure society, and it's going to revolve around this event that's about to take place. God is showing us also how serious he is about being Lord in every aspect of our lives. He wants to be the God 
of every aspect of, the, of his people's lives, beginning with the calendar, beginning with the clock. Um, so God's saying, we're starting, we're starting from the ground and going to build up from there. So reset the calendar. Um, then it describes the, the prescription for the Passover lamb um, and the, the details surrounding the actual Passover feast. So I just want to read some of this. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for the household, or a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your account for the lamb. Your, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the first thing I want to point out in this section is the resetting of the calendar. The second thing I want, to, I want to talk about is how the Passover really screams Christ at us. <laughs> and we have to slow down and look at some of these details. One of, my favorite, um, one of my favorite readings of this section in light of who Jesus is is from John Wesley. So I want to pull a lot of this is just straight plagiarism from John Wesley. Um, it's some shameless, shameless plagiarism. But I think it's really good. And some of these are pretty obvious, and some of them are, are not so obvious. So I want to talk about some of the parallels between the Passover and Jesus. You know, we said that one of the things we want to keep in mind is where Jesus is, is clearly foreshadowed in the book of Exodus. And you can't talk about Jesus in the book of Exodus without talking about the Passover lamb. Um, all right. So four things here. Um. The killing of the Passover lamb, the sprinkling of the blood, the eating of the lamb, and then the feast of the unleavened bread all say something about Jesus. Okay? First of all, the killing of the Passover lamb. Obviously, this, this foreshadows the death of Jesus on our behalf. Okay? Him becoming the sacrifice. And so you just look at the lamb. It's a male in his a male a year old. That's a male in its prime. Jesus was killed really in the prime of his life. You know, he was 33 years old around there. This is how old I am. <laughs> kind of weird to think about. But that's really when someone's coming into the prime of their life. A male a year old. Without blemish. Obviously, Jesus was the perfect man. He he hadn't sinned. There was nothing there was no guilt to be found in him. Uh, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. It says you just set apart the lamb four days prior to the sacrifice. Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem four days before the sacrifice. Right? He was sacrificed Friday. He went in on the first day of the week. Okay, there's, there's four days <laughs> Killed by the whole congregation of Israel, right? And this isn't, some people call this anti-Semitic, but Scripture says that, and Peter himself says that it was the people of Israel. You have crucified Jesus. It was the mob. It was the whole congregation. 
killed the Christ. Uh, not a bone was to be broken. And you remember that scripture in, in the Gospel of John where it says they were going to break his legs when he was on the cross. And instead they chose to pierce his side with the spear. It says that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So that's in the killing of the Passover lamb, which is really a type of the death of Jesus on our behalf. What the lamb was, what, what, it, what the qualifications were for a, a, a lamb that was eligible for the Passover, Jesus fulfilled those qualifications. Number two, after they killed the lamb, verse 7, it says, They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house's in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night. Well, so we stop there. The sprinkling of the blood. Okay? They, they killed the lamb. And Wesley points out that it wasn't enough just to, to have the blood. There was something to be done with the blood. And one of Wesley's great uh, words, you, you apply the blood. The blood needed to be applied which indicates some measure of obedience on the part of the people, right? They've killed the lamb. Now here's the blood. Now they have something to do with the blood, okay? They are to apply it in obedience in the way that God prescribed. Take the blood and do this with it, okay? And it was applied in a public manner. Where is it? It's on the front of the house, so that everyone can see. All right? So this, this is really a, a type of our atonement. Christ has been sacrificed for us, yes. But now his blood is available to us. And there's something to be done with the blood. It needs to be applied. Right? And we apply the blood every week. Okay? We, we receive it. We put it. We, we, and, and Hebrews says our, our consciences have been sprinkled clean. Okay, we appropriate the uh, atoning blood of Jesus into our lives. We respond to it. We reciprocate. God has, has allowed his son to be sacrificed. The blood is there. Now we receive it and we apply it in the way that he wants us to. And in a public manner. Right? This is to be the defining aspect of our lives. Number three, the, the, they, they eat the lamb. Okay? Kill the lamb Apply the blood, eat the lamb. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Um, The cross of Jesus is not just a religious symbol. It's an invitation. Okay, We are to not just... Say, there's the lamb. All right, great. Now we've received the blood. Now let's go. No, we are to take the life of Jesus into our own lives. And in, in eating, that becomes a participation in the life of Jesus. Uh, so Scripture does call the cross, you know, the, the death of Jesus, the atoning work that allowed us to get back into relationship with God. But it's also an example that he has set for us to follow. Okay, it's not just an atoning work. It's also the life now that we are called to live and participate in that work. 
we participate in his life again. This this is really a a, a, a memorial of Passover. That's why I want to do it at the end. We take his life into our life, and we become like him. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. We were talking about this <laughs> this morning, eating the whole, all the different parts of the animal. Um, somehow that came up when we were moving all the beef in <laughs> JP's house. He was saying it's, it's made out of all parts of the animal. Um, you're to eat the whole thing, he says. All of it. It's an interesting detail. If we, if we think about the life of Jesus in this way, we have to take in all of Jesus, not just the parts we like. Not just the parts that, the, the cuts that we prefer. Right? Not just the, the wise sage Jesus, but also the wrathful prophet Jesus. We have to eat the whole thing. Right? The whole life of Jesus is for us. We can't just pick out the parts that we like and, and toss the rest to the side. With bitter herbs, right? We always, and, and the bitterness was to be a reminder of the bitterness of bondage, the bitterness of sin, okay? the bitterness of our slavery to ourselves. Uh, and we are to always mourn our sins. Right? One of the things that we do is we examine ourselves before we come, take, come and take communion. And one of the things that should happen as we examine ourselves is a mourning of our past sins. Right? Not to revisit them. Right? We've been forgiven. This is a joyful thing. But we can mourn our sins. Okay? And we remember. That's a useful thing. Right? This is, this is the, what God told them to do this to remember. It's a useful thing to remember the bitterness of bondage. Okay? Because what happens later on? They start to think, well, maybe we should go back. Maybe it was better back there. No, we always need to remember it was awful in sin. It was awful when we were in slavery. That life is terrible. We should never want to go back. Taste the bitterness. You remember? You remember the bitterness. We mourn our sins. And it's eaten in a spirit of haste and readiness to depart. Okay. And what Wesley says about this, how's it going? What Wesley says about this is that this is, a, this is a reminder that Egypt is not our inheritance, that this is not the resting place. We are eating this and we're out of here. We're on our way out. This is not home. We're taking this to go, right? We're driving through. We pick it up and take it to go, right? Um, we are leaving. We are headed out. Of Egypt, yes, but even in the world in its current state, this is not the final place. As we dwell in, this, in these last days, looking forward to, to the promised land, to the time when heaven and earth really are one, and there's, all evil is banished out of the kingdom, we eat, we partake of Jesus, and there's a sense of we're headed somewhere. We're looking toward our final destination. Okay, So there's an eschatological aspect to receiving Christ. And we hold loosely, it says this, um, you shall not let any of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains 
until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Um, we're holding loosely the things of the world. I love that, how, how Wesley ties that to just this idea that when we partake of Christ, we do it in a way that we look at the, all the things around us, all the worldly activities that we're involved in, even good stuff, bad stuff, whatever. And we, we remember that really just this is what matters. And all the, all of the stuff of our lives, all the, it's like, <laughs> this is a great example, that like the, the Barlow's just moved and they just pared everything down to what would fit into, the, how many square feet is that? <laughs> what's that, what's the a decrease? What were you in? Yeah, we're, we're we're paring it down by two thirds, right? And the other two thirds are in the the garage back there. But we, we we're holding on to the essentials, right? During the Passover, we only have the essentials, and really, this is the life that we should always live in this world. We only need the essentials. We're headed somewhere. This is not the place. We're our roots are not here. We have pulled our roots up, and we are on our way out. So the killing of the Passover lamb is a type of the death of Jesus on our behalf. The sprinkling of the blood is a type of the, uh, the dynamic of our atonement. Okay? Christ's blood is available. We need to apply it and appropriate it. The eating of the lamb is a type of our devotion to Christ, our devotion to Jesus, the way that we pursue him, the way that we follow after him. Okay? We follow after him mourning the past bondage and holding loose the things of the world. Amen? And finally, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. You know, the, the, the Passover itself was the first night of a week-long feast of unleavened bread. Okay? This moment of salvation and atonement was just the beginning. This was just the beginning of this week-long feast. Also in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I mean, the whole point of it is eating unleavened bread. And Scripture points out some of the things that this symbolizes. Um... A purity of heart, right? Just a, a singleness of heart. One devotion. It's, it's just bread, right? There's nothing else added. We eat Jesus, and it's just Jesus. No fillers, no enhancements, no seasonings, no little sprinkle of this and a pinch of this. It's just Jesus. And he's enough. He's sufficient, Sincerity, but it's also it's, it's a it's a symbol of the sufficiency and the enoughness of Jesus, but it's also a symbol of the kind of lives that we should live in simplicity. And First Corinthians says, um, let's go there. Actually, First Corinthians, where is it? I think it's around chapter 5, but let me, let me double check. Okay. 
That's it? Yes. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. We want to be new lumps around here. (laughs) The church of new lumps. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We're done with ulterior motives, right? We're done with using each other for my own purposes. We are here in sincerity and truth. We've received the unleavened bread and we've become the unleavened bread. And it says this, this, uh, this shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. The feast is continual. The feast is recurring to every generation. This is always what it's going to be. We will always be coming back to this and this alone. All right. Now, so the next point. So that's just a a whirlwind view of the way that the Passover lamb uh, is a type of Jesus and and our life with Jesus, our relationship with him. Um, The next thing I want to talk about is how the Passover was to be a memorial day. The Passover was set up to be a memorial day. It was to it was to be remembered. It says it's a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Um, verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. You should never forget. You're in the promised land. I want you to be remembering this. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So the Passover, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it became one of the primary annual feasts in Egypt. It was one of the ways, so he reset the calendar, and then he reordered all of their holidays. Okay? These are the days, these are the high days of the year. The biggest one is Passover. I want you to remember the bitterness of, of slavery in Egypt and, and feed on the Passover lamb and apply the blood and remember how I passed over you because of the blood. Because I allowed you, I gave you a way of escape. Remember this in every generation. And it's set up, I love this, so do it in every generation and do it in a way that it makes your kids curious. Right? Do this thing because eventually your kids are going to grow up and they're going to get to about the age that my son Joey is and ask you a thousand questions a day. <laughs> Why this? What is this? What is this? Do this Passover and your kids are going to ask you and that is your chance 
to lead your kids into an understanding of who God is and who we are as his people. By the way, just as a side note, your kids' questions are the God-given way that, that for them to, to come into an understanding of truth. So don't get impatient with your kids' questions. Um, answer them. Help them learn. This is one of God's mechanisms for them to, uh, even as he says in Scripture, to, to come to know him. The things that you do, let them see you do, uh, live out your life with the Lord, and answer every question they have about why you're doing what you're doing. That's the best moment that you have uh, to really share the gospel with your kids. Stop everything and answer those, answer those questions. Um, so God wanted the people to regularly remember what? That their redemption was not something way out there, but that it's happened. It's real. We are free. The people of God. We are the people of God. God has already moved on our behalf. Remember that? It's finished. Okay? And so for us, we are to remember it's finished. God has dealt with sin. He has provided a way to escape the wrath of God. He has led them through uh, the waters. He has covered over Pharaoh and his chariots with the waters. And he has led you out toward the promised land. Now... We see pretty quickly in the story why remembrance was such an important thing to God. Because they forget pretty much instantly, even after God tells them to remember. <laughs> they forget pretty much instantly. And we'll talk about that next week. We'll t- this is going to be a real downer week, I think, next week. Because we're going to talk about, we're talking about the great glorious works of salvation today. And we're going to talk about the, the warning <laughs> to us in Scripture about not grumbling and, and not, being, uh, not being like the Israelites in that way. Um, and they basically treat God uh, like he has done very little <laughs> for them. Right? <laughs> Whoa. Um, that's some of the most convicting stuff for me in, in all of Exodus. So they're, they're to remember this every year. Make it an annual feast. Make it, make it one of the, the primary feasts. And uh, actually, in the book of Deuteronomy, after they've been punished for 40 years for their stubbornness and their easily forgetfulness, uh, God says, hey, when you get to Canaan, remember the Passover, not just once a year. He says, remember it every Sabbath day. (laughs) All right, let's a year. Once a year is not enough. Let's do it every week. You guys need to remember. Okay, we've been 40 years. Uh. Going around and around and around and around the mountain. Every week, you're going to have to stop and say, who are we? What has God done? What is salvation? Who am I? What's my name? What's your name? Right? You have to remember who you are. Okay. Um, So that's the Passover. And so then they get to the crossing of the sea. And I love that story. There's not much... There's not much I want to pull, point out other than the fact that the, God goes to great lengths to shut off every other path for their deliverance. Right? He goes to great lengths to say, he, he basically makes them, turns them into sitting ducks. <laughs> he leads them down, and now it's just water and Pharaoh's army. What in the world are we going to do? 
Right? And God wants them to know, I think, in that, that there is no other way to be saved. That, that when, you, when you think about it, and if you're even a little bit honest with yourself, there's no possible way that you could say that there was any other way out of that situation. Chapter 14, verse 4. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We talked about that last week. God was making it so that nobody who even was remotely close to the situation would be able to not see who God was, right? He was, he was acting as a sign. This is how I'm going to do it, and they're going to know who I am, undeniably. He's revealing himself. Um, verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord will, and this is it. it. God is the deliverer. There's no one else. And he's not just kind of the deliverer. He's the all the way deliverer. And you just need to watch and be silent. So the story is told in no uncertain terms that and this, this really is uh, a parallel of baptism for us. In the water, the, the detail is very clear that the waters fully covered over and none of them came back out of the water. <laughs> it was gone, buried, done in the water, never to be seen again, fully dealt with. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's beautiful in its simplicity, right? They went across the sea, and God fully dealt with their enemies. And they turned around, and they saw dead Egyptians, and they praised God. <laughs> that's it. That's, that, that's us. That's the life we live. That's our salvation. So we get to chapter 15, and it's, it's a worship song. Okay, and I just want to read this because this, is, this was really what was on my heart coming tonight. That we always have to be, no, no matter what God tells us to do, no matter how many complex situations we find ourselves thrown into, we, ha- we always have to be able, as a people of God, to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord. Okay, so let me read this. This for us is, is like the book of Psalms in that it, it, it really shows us what the truly proper response is to witnessing the salvation of the Lord. Okay? And we've all witnessed that in our lives. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord. 
saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And always got to point out, they're, they're naming God, right? God was concerned with, is, with Egypt and Israel knowing Yahweh as God. Nobody else. And here in the song, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. He has a name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a pile. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. This is a song that, is, that got the message that God was trying to send. There's no one like you because of what you did and the way you made yourself known. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them out by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. All of these, all of these nations that all have their own ways, God's people is in the land. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So they were, they're rejoicing. There's this great sound, this awesome song that is a perfect response to the mighty acts of God in delivering them. And it really is, if you want to be full of worship, just know this inside and out. This is how you worship God. You tell Him who He is. You recognize what He has done. You recognize what it means for you, and you own Him as your God. And you say yes. I love, I love this idea of the Lord is my strength and my song. He is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. All right, I want to point out something very interesting about this song. And it's in Revelation 15.
easy to remember because it's Exodus 15, Revelation 15. Revelation 15 is basically a retelling of this, but it's in a vision that John is having. Listen to this. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Okay, plagues, (laughs) angels, the wrath of God. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. With harps of God in their hands. This is the scene. This is the scene in Exodus 15. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. There's the tabernacle. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. Clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is, what, this is how the book of Exodus ends. The glory of God descends in the tabernacle, and no, one's able, no one is able to enter. Okay, so what's the point of this? All right, it's a parallel. It's sort of a, a heavenly apocalyptic version of the story in Exodus. I think the point is that this is just not something we look back on. This is, this is a story that is historical in some ways, but it's also an eternal story. That we will, and we are right now, in the middle of God's uh, act of deliverance. He is doing this thing. He is working mightily. He is calling his people to himself. He is setting up his holy temple. His wrath is going out on the kings of the nations. His people are in the earth rejoicing in his salvation and waiting for his judgments to come and take place. Okay, we are the people on the shore right now. John is viewing this in the heavens. This isn't just... This isn't just going to happen in some sort of weird way in the future. This is going on in the eternal realm. This is reality. Okay? This is actually who we are. And Moses' song is playing in heaven. God likes that song. (laughs) It's on repeat. They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And so my encouragement to us tonight and my challenge to us is to ask ourselves, is God your song? Is God your song? And I was honestly, this was my main point tonight before you even prayed that. He prayed, it was like almost verbatim. What did you, what was exactly what you prayed? I said, I pray that we leave here tonight all with, the, with your tune or something like that. Exactly. The Lord is my strength 
and my song. Is God your song? What makes God your song? Um, When you are captured with his mighty deeds. When you, yes, in the book of Exodus, but the life of Jesus. Those are the mighty deeds of God himself. When we are captivated with the life of Jesus and, and following him, it's the, that's the song of the Lamb, right? We are, it says they are following the Lamb in Revelation. Our hearts are continually singing that song. And that's what's going on in heaven. That's, that's eternal life, is singing that song. And so that's my question. Is God really your song? Have you really experienced that? Do you live in that? God was very concerned that they really understand salvation and deliverance and the mighty power of God. Remember it, remember it, remember it. I love that song. Keep singing it. They stop singing it. And to the Lord goes up a murmur, <laughs> not a song. How many, what's your song to murmur ratio in your prayer? Right? That's, that's a question you should ask yourself. Because the normal Christian life is that song. Okay? And, and there, there are a few places in the New Testament that really drive this home. But I just want to look at one of them in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 19, or 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Always and for everything. That's pretty comprehensive. So the question is, is God your song? We're going to see the danger of God not being our song (laughs) next week. We're going to see why God was so concerned with them remembering and having tangible symbols in front of them. It's the actual blood. (laughs) Remember. Remember, remember, eat the bitter herbs, taste it. You remember it? That's the bitterness of slavery. You have to remember this. And we have, you have to remember being on the shore and seeing the dead Egyptians and your heart just erupting in praise and thanks and, and truth, being caught up into the heavenly worship. Is God your song? Um, and then the other challenge I have is, is this. On one hand, we always need to rest in the truth that God has passed over. Right? That's what they were to remember. For God passed over. He did not destroy us. He gave us a way to escape his wrath. We, we need to rest in that truth. Right? Jesus has gone before us. His blood is better than bulls and goats. And he has gone before the throne of God and sprinkled his own blood 
But even then, they were to have a sense of urgency and, and obedience in applying the blood. And the blood was a provision, but it would have been meaningless if it just stayed there in the buckets or whatever. If it didn't get applied to the doorposts and the lintel. According to God's instruction. So, so my other challenge, is God your song? And do you apply the blood? Do you appropriate the provision? Because yes, it is a provision. <laughs> but you have to receive it. And you have to walk in it. And you have to live in it. There are ways the scripture tells us that we can begin to um, grieve the Holy Spirit. And there are ways that we can begin to uh, spurn his grace and reject his grace and, and crucify the Son of God anew. Okay, and that, those things happen when we are not applying the blood, when we are not saying it's only by your blood. That the wrath of God has not destroyed me. And we take that blood and we say, now I am yours. Tell me what to do. I'll do whatever you want. And we obey his instructions. So there, there is a sense of urgency that God has poured out grace, but we have to appropriate grace. Or else we're going to end up, God's not going to distinct, God's not going to differentiate. Right? The people with the bucket of blood who didn't just get around to putting it on the house, God didn't differentiate. He didn't say, well, that was close enough. I see what they were trying to do. <laughs> they were destroyed. And I think that's a, that's a warning that we need to heed. I think there's probably a few ways that God wants to apply that to your own life. Um, whether If there's something that you just know you need to be doing, and you're just going to kind of get around to doing it. Or if there's a person you really need to, uh, that you really need to lay your life down for. And God's been saying, go do that. And you're just not going to really get around to doing it. I'm not saying those things are at the same level of applying the blood to your door. But I'm saying the grace of God is extended. And there is a, there is a participation that we have and a response to that that we have. That we have to be urgently saying, God... How do you want me to appropriate your grace? What do you want me to do with this blood? Or do we ask God that? Thank you for the blood. What should I do with it? How should I live? Tell me what to do. Okay? How do I live? Mark me as yours. How do you want to mark me as yours? So that everyone can know that this house is a house that follows God. All right. So really one of those is an exhortation. And one of them is maybe an admonition, more of a warning that, yes, every provision has been made, but there is a need for you uh, to step forward in obedience and receive the work of God. Um, so we're going to come to the table tonight. And man, we have a lot to, we have a lot to remember and a lot of, uh, a lot of great symbolism uh, before us. So uh, we are going to come and partake of our Passover lamb. We're going to come and apply the blood. We're going to come and eat, literally eat, of 
the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. To become like Him. To feed on Him. He said, if you don't eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. And so we're going to come. And in this, we are going to acknowledge the sacrifice that was made so that we could walk with God. But we're also going to uh, accept and, and, and follow the example that this sets before us by the grace of God. Um, and we're going to come away from this with a song on our hearts. We're going to be able to look at this and say, yes, this is my song. Jesus has died for me. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me, has, has, has deterred the wrath of God from my life. And now the life of Jesus is my life. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Amen? All right, so let's, um, let's prepare our hearts, and let's come and remember Jesus and um, receive this. Let's, let's, let's apply the blood. In, in, in a spirit of joy and, and uh, holy fear and in gratitude that God has passed over us. And we can now turn around and look at Pharaoh under the waves, at all the dead Egyptians, at all the, the bitterness in our past. We can just look at it and give thanks to God. Amen?